Nijay, I'm teaching a class right now. It's one. It, I think it's one of the most unique classes I've ever taken. It is a one-credit uh, Bible seminar class where we are taking 16 weeks and exploring all of the hard texts in the Bible. Mm. So we are reading, for example, uh, what do you do when the, the sun stops in the sky in Joshua? What do we do with um, Jesus saying, if, if you don't hate your mother and your father, you can't be in the kingdom? Uh, moments where Paul says, you know, the submission text, we, a, a variety of just really fun, difficult texts. And this week, we are tackling Psalm 137. Which is uh, that um, that famous and excruciatingly painful psalm, uh, where the author is uh, talking about the Babylonians and the Edomites, and they make this shocking com- comment: "Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes their heads ag- mm. their heads against the rocks." Right. Um, likely, Nijay, not your life verse, uh, certainly not <laughs> mine, but. Um, a, a psalm, a, a, a line in the Psalter, nonetheless, and it is the clearly the author's rage of anger against what likely was uh, abuse and trauma that they themselves had endured. These emotions uh, that often we face in the Christian life can have a great impact on our journey with Christ. Uh, we. Many of us were never raised or taught what to do with our emotions. We yeah. were never trained or discipled or formed around the emotional life. And so when we grow up, we go to college, we begin seeing things in the world that are hard and difficult, and we're in places that you know aren't as nurturing as maybe we were we, we had when we were a kid or protected. Um, we face a whole new world of emotions that often we don't know what to do with. But we are invited in the Psalms and in so much of the Bible to um, come to terms with our rage, with our anger, with our um, those emotions that swirl within. We have the whole tradition of the imprecatory psalms in in the Psalter that deal with these these emotions. We've already talked a little bit about emotions and doubt and the interplay right. between the two, but I, I felt like we needed to dig into this a little bit more because, uh, for example, when you know when you read um, that psalm, Psalm one thirty seven, we see the author raging in anger against the Babylonians and Edomites, but we can't forget the context of these Psalms. Psalm 136, I think 26 or 27 times, talks about God's enduring hesed love, this this deep, abiding, um, loving kindness that Yahweh has for the world. Um, And why that, I think that's important for uh, us as uh, people on the way is that we're going to experience rage and anger and feelings of great negativity, but there's a context for those emotions, and the context must be in the context of God's love and enduring patience and kindness. Yeah. There needs to be a place to hold our difficult, dark, painful emotions. And 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 for many Christians, uh, we we haven't offered much of a framework for that. And I I think ultimately when we look at kind of our our social environment right now, polarization. Um, and, and the and the difficulties that we're seeing of, of fracturing in our our national civic discourse and so so forth, a lot of uh, the anger that we see in the streets is probably actually the result of a church that hasn't known how to get angry, mm-hmm. and because the church doesn't know how to get angry about racial inequity or injustice or um, wrongs that we clearly can see that have been perpetuated and perpetrated by um, American society or in American society, that anger has to go somewhere. Right. It has to be somewhere. It can't just dissipate. 
into the ether. It must go somewhere. Um, yeah, it was, it was pointed out to me by a colleague. Um, I run a doctor ministry program at Fuller Seminary, and it was pointed out to me that uh, even in the lec- uh, in in the the lectionary in contemporary um, you know liturgical services and among Anglicans and Episcopalians and Lutherans the the that the the lectionary actually since the 1940s or 1930s has taken out the, yeah. the imprecatory psalms for that. public reading and that all the that meaning they're just not read anymore largely because I don't think people know what to do with them I think that illustrates the symptomatic the symptom of a church that doesn't anymore know what to do with dark emotions. We've literally cut those parts of the Bible out from our lectionary readings. Um, there's a danger with that. Yeah. So what 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 role and, and how are we formed in our emotions, uh, particularly around f- emotions of hatred and rage and anger? What do we do with those emotions? Um, yeah. I've been talking about this a lot recently with my students because I think this is part of what you and I call slow theology. Because the opposite, what you might call fast or fast food theology, wants to get back to the happy place quickly. Mm. And so we've been taught salvation is this easy, quick release to get back to the smile on your face, to get back to bottling up those feelings. And then it comes to kind of an explosive point where we do things we regret or we reject the faith because it seems too artificial or superficial. You know, Sung Chan Ra wrote a book uh, about this uh, a handful of years ago on prophetic lament. Mm -hmm. So he does kind of a cultural theological engagement with the book of Lamentations and then thinking about things today. And he talks about American Christian worship music. And this has popped up again I, in, recently on social media with other, other uh, interested scholars. But uh, the reality is the vast majority of the worship songs we sing are triumphal. They have resolution. And I remember Nancy Ortberg saying that um, uh, the word psalm means praise, even though a large number of the Psalms actually express Mm. lament. Mm. So there's even a twist of irony uh, there. And um, it's interesting. Some people want to say our worship music is too, is shouldn't be so happy. Um, I think that's partially true. I think what's missing our worship music, actually some Psalms are happy. Absolutely. And then you have things like the song of Moses that is triumphal. So I'm not saying we get rid of those. I think it's actually dangerous to get rid of those. It's kind of trading one problem for another. The problem we have, AJ, is that we don't really have a menu, a healthy menu. So you think about the kind of USDA plate yeah. of appropriate portions. Yep. You have your vegetables and you have your meat and you have your fruit and whatnot. And we have a plate of just triumphal songs. And they don't resonate with a lot of people. We just spent part of an episode talking about how the Christian ought to spend time thinking about um, the the weight of, of sin and, and the problems of the world. Uh, and then we go to church and everything, and then people can't really say, 
I'm having a terrible day. If someone at church says, how are you? The right answer is I'm fine. Yeah. Or I'm great. You want to give some kind of Ned Flanders, yep. hey, hey, diddly ho kind of answer. And is, you know, if we were to really inject what you're talking about, which is the raw honesty of certain parts of scripture into our liturgy, into our prayer life, um, would it give us a more healthy, balanced relationship with God and understanding of the faith? Um, I think that's so important. I think it's important to process our emotions. I think it's important to pray our emotions. I guarantee you when I was young, I didn't think it was appropriate to say to God, I'm mad at you. Yeah, sure. I, I think I would have felt like that's that's inappropriate. And actually, I'm an Asian, and in Asian culture, you're not really supposed to say that to an authority figure. Mm-hmm. But what we learn from Scripture is God can handle that. He can handle you saying, God, you didn't do what you yeah. said you were going to do. I expected you to bail me out here. I heard somebody say once that Disneyland, I had a friend who was just in Disneyland who um, I kind of creeped him out with this. More people um, are buried at, uh, uh, at at Disneyland than anywhere else in the world. What? Um, I was told that um, at the uh, in the Pirates of the Caribbean, more people spread ashes in the Pirates of the Caribbean than anywhere else in the world. And they have to like cut people off from doing this. They'll catch people all the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's utterly yeah, wild to think about. Uh, but but this person who had been to Disneyland told me that um, Disneyland, people don't die at Disneyland. Um, what they will do is if you like have a heart attack or uh, you get really sick on Disneyland, they will get you off the property yeah. so that, um, you know, you don't go on the statistics because they don't want people dying because it's the happiest place on right, earth. Right. Um, I, I've served as a pastor and I know the temptations when, when Christians begin to wake up to their emotions to just want them off the property. Yeah. Because because you don't want them to impact the whole church. You don't want them to start asking hard questions because it 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 can disrupt. It can be disruptive and and challenges. But I, I had to be confronted, Nijay, even in per- serving in pastoral ministry. I had to be confronted with Paul with you know the Paul Paul's clear admonition: weep with those who weep, with, rejoice with those who rejoice. Th- that implies that the weepers and rejoices rejoices are actually together. Yeah. In the room, they're yeah. t- they're there together. You don't have one church for the rejoicer and one church for the re- you know for the person who's weeping. You have them together, and and that we go to where the other uh, person is. I agree with you. We still need the happy clappy songs, right. okay? That we need to have the moments where we are living in the triumphal reign of Christ. We need this, and we simultaneously need to embrace the psalms that make make us grieve uh, the fullest uh, grief because that grief is going to go somewhere. I gosh, Nijay, I part of me wonders if essentially we've replaced the imprecatory psalms uh in our culture uh with Twitter. So we've we've <laughs> essentially cut out the imprecatory life. Right. And we we still it still has to go somewhere. So we just have done it on social media. That's become the avenue. I don't know. Explain more what you mean by that. I, I mean what what I mean is it's not as though we are not expressing our rage and anger. It's just, we're not taking it to God. That, that, yeah. We're not That's taking it true. to the church. We're not taking it to the people tasked with the job of declaring the good news to the world. Uh, we are taking it to these public spaces. And I'm not saying that it's Twitter's fault. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't, I would be the first to say who, as a man who served as a pastor, the church can be one of the worst places in the world to right. take those emotions. I get it a hundred percent. 
But I think what what Twitter and 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 whatnot are showing us is we have to take it somewhere. It has to go somewhere. A secular person has a deep, fundamental, created need for imprecatory psalms as much as a Christian does. And when you when you are a secular person, you have to take your rage somewhere. Um, that that the Bible embraces the imprecatory side of the faith to me is astounding. That we have psalms where God. Where, where where David or the sons of Asaph or whatnot actually declare to God their anger at God. Name one other religion where God inspires texts of anger against that God. I mean, yeah. it is astounding. It's to me one of the greatest arguments for the inspiration of the Old Testament that you have such raw that God is permitting creating space uh, for these uh, um, emotions. So Jesus, right? Tim Keller, one of the great, if you've never listened, you have to listen to the sermon that Tim Keller gave the week after 9-11. So he's, he is in New York City. Mm -hmm. We're at the 20 year anniversary. He is in New York City. People in his church died. I mean, he had, and he preached on the Lazarus story. He has this line in that sermon, but I think hands down the uh, most memorable moment in a sermon I've ever listened to. He's talking about uh, Jesus uh, going to Lazarus, um, who has already died. He does this kind of riff on the two sisters and how he responds to the two differently based on their responses to him. But he says, he says, isn't it interesting? Jesus knew, Jesus knew Lazarus would rise. Yeah, he knew it, and yet he still cried. Yeah. The hope of resurrection is not an excuse to not feel. Even though, even though we know the future, we still need to cry. Yeah, I, I you know, this is a timely subject because a, a good friend of mine uh, has written a book on this. Uh, it's coming out very soon um, in October 2021. Uh, Richard Middleton, mm-hmm. uh, who was my colleague, uh, used to teach with at Roberts Wesleyan College, North Northeastern Seminary. Uh, he was born in Jamaica and lived in Canada and America, so he calls himself a Jamaicadian. <laughs> um, and he's a really good um, uh, badminton player, by the way. Uh, he could whip my butt in badminton. But he just wrote this book, Old Testament Theologian, and it's called Abraham's Silence. Hmm. And his argument is that we we treat Abraham's silence on the sacrificing of Isaac as a noble thing. And Middleton argues in this book, so I'm kind of spoiling the punchline here. He argues actually that God wanted him to argue back, mm. that there is a, a, a tradition in the Old Testament of faithful talk back mm. to God. And that, that, uh, we see that happen with Job. And we see that happen with uh, Abraham on other occasions. And we see that happen with Moses, where there's a pattern of believers, people of God, faithfully crying out to God, complaining to God even. Um, And what that tells you is not that you're being mean, not that you're disrespecting God, even though it can get to a place of disrespect, but that this is what covenant is. It's a real relationship. And in real relationships, we have times of feeling hurt. We have times of feeling angry. We have times of feeling frustrated. 
And slow theology, which you and I have been talking about, is about just sitting in that and allowing that to take place and not feel like it has to fly out as a tweet or that it has to be quickly turned into praise. Uh, I know we're, we're going to wrap up soon, but I want to introduce you to a conversation I had with my students that got into a little bit of an argument amongst our class, but it ended up being a really fruitful argument. We were studying Philippians, where Paul and the Philippians are going through a hard time. Paul's in prison. The Philippians are going through suffering, persecution. Paul's repeated message there is rejoice, which we might say, mm-hmm. be happy or celebrate. And some students uh, resonated with that and said, we need to be able to tell people, hey, stop being so glum, rejoice. And other people were saying, uh, that's kind of rude to someone Mm -hmm. going through a hard time to just say, hey, snap out of it, rejoice. Um, And so as I've been talking about slow theology, my students, I like to say what we have there is not a need to choose one over the other, but a tension. A tension there between feeling the feelings that we have and at the same time knowing some of some of the deeper truths of the gospel. And it's not about just turning over and saying, okay, I'm gonna put on a happy face, but it's also not about wallowing. Yeah. Yep. And so I guess the conclusion I've come to on that, and I'm still processing it because it's a really interesting thing for a prisoner facing an unknown future to say to a group of people suffering, rejoice. But the way I'm processing that, that is, I think it's normal and expected and good to let people experience the, the, the downness and darkness and sadness they're going yeah. through. But if it persists and we cling on to that and we ruminate on that too much past a certain point that's hard to predict, then we really need to intervene and say, um, I don't know if this is healthy. Um, but but just that conversation of saying there is a time to mourn with those who mourn. Yes. There is a time to be silent uh, as people are going through suffering. Um, we don't make spaces for that in our church as much as we should. Yeah, I, I write about this in After Doubt, and I'll close I'll close with this in terms of this conversation. Um in uh, in my book After Doubt, I talk about uh, a fairly well known pattern in the Psalter, which is um, this pattern of uh, very often we see in these Psalms that the author will spend a whole Psalm and you know be very honest with God about their plights and what they're facing, and they're surrounded by the cows of Bashan and you know all these sort of things. But then the last line in the Psalm will be this word of praise. But yet I praise you, O Lord. Um, but I, de- I declare you are king. You know, the, the last line will be this final declarative statement of God's lordship, mm. uh, a, a term that Old, Old Testament scholars have often called anticipatory praise, that we are praising God in anticipation of what he is going to do. Right. I almost wonder if that's Paul Paul's spirit there, is he's not saying don't deal with your emotions. Uh, he's saying, look, get, get them out and then rejoice. Yeah. Like, say it. And then rejoice, because the ultimate reality is your emotions do not declare the full story. None of our emotions do. Uh, emotions are emotions. But they're expressions. Um, they're expressions, and yeah. they're important for them to be expressed, um, and and to be expressed in community for us to be seen. I mean, we're learning so much right now about mirror neurons and how humans need to be seen uh, to be able to be fully healed. We need we need to be felt. We we need to feel felt. 
right? We need to know that somebody looking us in the eye sees the pain that we are walking through. That brings healing to the brain and the body. Uh, we're learning from neuroscience that mirror neurons are, are fundamental to a, a well brain. Um, but after doing that, that we still have breath to say, yet <laughs> you, you are Lord. Yeah. We rejoice in yeah. you. You are good. And you, despite all of this, um, you are still worthy of my praise. And I think you're right. There is a, a sense of wallowing. There's that line in Job that says, Job you know, tears his clothes and he tells God what for, but he never blames God. Right. He never faults God. There's a, there's a line. There, there's an important line that, that we've got to be cautious uh, to cross. Yeah. So, man, if you're a Christian um, and you, you're following Jesus and you wonder um, what to do with your emotions, I think what we're attempting to say here is we're attempting to say um, it is not the Christian approach. It is not the spirituality of the Psalms. It is not a biblical vision to deny, ignore, or shut those emotions up. But it is simultaneously not the biblical vision to make the whole story your emotions. Right. That that in the middle of all of that, Christ is Lord and 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 worthy of being trust. Yeah. Yeah. Does that resonate? Is that is absolutely that, yeah. there's a balance there, but but I think the bottom line is um the Bible is a book of emotion as much yeah. as it is theology and truth. And and that part can be really restorative and healing to us. Thanks, yeah. AJ.